We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? About four or five times more work than what we anticipated, and the pilot Pfizer is completely locked over, really frozen over. So in that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Griffin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 84 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 11 with Charles Pete. Conrad and Richard Gordon, Part 2. We left off last time with the Gemini 11 and Atlas Agena on their respective launch pads getting prepared for liftoff. It was the morning of September 12, 1966. Conrad and Gordon arrived at the pad and stepped into their seats exactly on time. Gunter Vint, the McDonald pad leader, signaled his men to close the hatches, but they soon had to reopen Conrad's hatch. Conrad had suspected that some oxygen was leaking from his side of the cabin, and he was right. When the hatch had been fixed, the countdown went on. At 8.05 a.m., the Atlas roared into action and lifted off into the sky. The craft performed flawlessly, and the Agena was inserted into orbit as planned. Back at Pad 19, the astronauts were anxiously awaiting liftoff. In order to execute a first-orbit rendezvous, the launch window for Gemini 11 was unbelievably short. In fact, it was the shortest launch window in the entire Gemini program. Gemini 10, for example, had 35 seconds in which to launch. Gemini 12 would have 30 seconds. But Charles Matthews had informed McDonnell and SSD that Gemini 11's launch window was only long enough for an on-time launch. The post-launch mission report, however, gave two seconds as the length of the window for the first orbital rendezvous. Rocketeers of the 40s, 50s, and early 60s would have been aghast at the idea of having to launch within two ticks of the clock. Precisely at 9.42, 26 and a half seconds, just a half of a second into the second launch window, the Titan booster lifted Gemini 11 toward a first orbit rendezvous with near-perfect accuracy. At six minutes, the flight control radioed, Gemini 11, you're a go for M equals 1, which meant they were go for a first orbit rendezvous. The message came at booster separation when debris could be seen out the window. Gordon had warned himself not to look, but temptation got the better of him for a brief instant. Gemini 11 was inserted into a 161 by 279 kilometer Earth orbit at 9.48 a.m. Immediately upon insertion, Conrad and Gordon performed an insertion velocity adjustment routine 
IVAR maneuver to correct the flight path up, down, right, left, and to add or decrease speed as needed. During IVAR, any decrease in spacecraft speed, such as a retrograde firing, is done with great care because of the danger of re-contact with the launch vehicle. The rules therefore say that pilots must have the booster in sight before they can begin to lower their speed. Their computer showed the crew that they had made very precise insertion corrections that would help them catch the Agena, only 430 kilometers away. The first onboard calculations had succeeded. Now it was time to try again. There would be no help from the ground, as Gemini 11 was out of telemetry and communications range. At the appointed moment, Conrad made an out-of-plane maneuver of one meter per second. He then pitched the spacecraft nose 32 degrees up from its horizontal flight plane. Now came the test to see if their first figures had been right. They turned on the rendezvous radar. The electric lock-on signal registered immediately. Happily, the crew switched the onboard computer to the rendezvous mode and began preparing for the final part of the catch-up. When they could talk to the ground again, Gordon said, quote, Be advised, we are within 50 nautical miles. End quote. John Young, the Houston Capcom, then cut in over the remote line through Tenerife to give the crew some numbers for the remainder of the chase. Conrad and Gordon checked these calculations against their own and found the difference so minor that they could have used either set for the job. They decided to stick with their own solutions. Just as the spacecraft neared the high point of the orbit, Conrad fired the thrusters to produce multi-directional changes forward, down, and to the right to travel the remaining 39 kilometers. Suddenly, the Agena, whose blinking light they had been watching in the darkness, flashed into the sunlight over the Pacific and almost blinded them. They scrambled for sunglasses, then Conrad jockeyed the spacecraft to within 15 meters of the target's docking cone. Over the coast of California, only 85 minutes after launch, rendezvous in the first orbit was achieved. A gleeful crew called out to the flight director, quote, Mr. Kraft, would you believe M equals 1? End quote. He would. Moreover, they still had 56% of their maneuvering fuel. This transmission made a believer out of Mission Director Snyder. He pulled a $1 bill out of his pants and paid his bet with James Elms and said, I never lost a better dollar. Here's the clip for station keeping. Okay, we're station keeping. Roger, outstanding. After appropriate congratulations, Young told Conrad and Gordon to go ahead and dock. Roger, you go for docking. 
Seconds later, Conrad reported rather matter-of-factly, We are docked. We are docked, Richard Wright Florence. We confirm their docked flight, Roger. The primary objective of first orbit docking was now complete. The Gemini 11 crew had an opportunity to do something else that NASA had wanted for a long time. Docking and undocking practice. Each man pulled out and drove back once in daylight and once in darkness. It was easier, much easier, Conrad said, than in the docking trainer on the ground. For the first time, also a co-pilot was given the chance to dock with a target vehicle. Even while docking and backing away from the Agena, the crew was meeting another flight objective. Attached to the Agena target docketing adapter was the S-26 experiment that studied the ion wake structure during docking practice. Two other experiments were started at that time, S-9, the nuclear emulsions, and a modified form of S-29, librations region photography. The crew turned on the emulsion package shortly after the hookup with the target, and a telemetry check disclosed that it was working. Gordon later retrieved it from behind the command pilot's hatch. S-29, a study of dim light phenomena, could not be carried out as planned because of the three-day mission delay. The Milky Way now obscured the intended target. Instead, the crew photographed two comets and the Gegenschein, which is the sunlight backscattered by interplanetary dust. After the last docking, the crew used the main Agena engine in a test run before going to high altitude. Facing 90 degrees away from the flight path, Conrad fired the main engine, adding a velocity of 33 meters per second, to pull over into a new orbital lane. This really impressed them. Gordon remarked to Capcom, which was John Young, who had flown the Agena spacecraft combination in Gemini 10, quote, I agree with you, John. Riding that primary propulsion system is the biggest thrill we've had all day. End quote. Now, after six hours of hard but frustration-free work, Conrad and Gordon powered down the spacecraft systems, ate a meal, and soon got a good night's salutation from the network. For eight hours, they dozed and rested, awakening, as Gordon said, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. The only complaints the pilots had were about their dirty windows. Dirty windows had plagued all Gemini flights. But, beginning with Gemini 9A, all spacecraft carried covers that could be jettisoned after the launch phase. But, they did not seem to help much. Earlier, Conrad had asked if Gordon could wipe his window when he went outside. Now, Alan Bean, who had taken over from John Young as Capcom, told the pilot to rub half the command pilot's window with a dry cloth and bring the rag back for testing. 
Conrad and Gordon napped and rested a while longer, then started their next major task, preparation for EVA. Four hours before they were to open the hatch, the crew began to get their suits ready for the vacuum environment. They had practiced this so many times on the ground, Conrad said, that they soon realized they did not need all that time. Within 50 minutes, the gear was ready and running. Just a few more steps and Gordon would have gone out, so Conrad called a halt, which left them sitting there. As he later said, Quote, with all the junk on, end quote. An hour later, they hooked up Gordon's environmental support system, and he made some oxygen flow tests. This was also a mistake. They quickly perceived the system dumped oxygen into the cabin, which in turn had to vent the excess into space. They could ill afford this rate of oxygen loss and Conrad had Gordon switch back to the spacecraft system. Gordon, uncomfortably warm, was glad to get back on the interior system. The extravehicular system heat exchanger had been designed to operate in the vacuum of space, not in a pressurized cabin. Briefly, the two men considered asking Flight Director Clifford Charlesworth to let Gordon go out a revolution early, but they decided to keep on schedule. As they sat and waited, they soon regretted that decision. At last, it was almost time to open the hatch. Gordon began putting a sun visor on his faceplate, which was a real chore and one which should have been done before he put on this extra gear. Conrad finally got the left side fastened but he could not reach across Gordon to fasten the other side. Gordon was now getting hot and bothered and had to rest. Time had been hanging on their hands before. Now it was rushing past. Gordon wrestled with the right snap for five minutes and finally got it fastened, cracking the visor in the process. He was thoroughly winded before he got out of his seat. Next, the Gemini cabin atmosphere was evacuated and the hatch opened to begin Richard Gordon's scheduled 107-minute EVA. Here come the garbage bags, Conrad warned. Everything in the spacecraft that was not tied down began to float toward and out, including Gordon. Outgassing of the environmental system caused this and the crew expected it. Conrad grabbed for a strap on the leg of Gordon's suit and held him in the seat. After the pressure equalized to a vacuum, Gordon emerged from his seat at 9.51 a.m., attached by an umbilical cord. First, he deployed a handrail, which was easy. Next, he picked up the S-9 nuclear emulsions package and handed it to Conrad, who shoved it down between his legs into the footwell. Gordon then tried to install a camera in a bracket to photograph his own movements, but this was more difficult. Finally, Conrad let enough of the umbilical slide through his gloved hand to let the pilot float above the camera and hit it with his fist to drive it into place. 
Now it was time for the spacewalker to move forward and attach a 30-meter tether housed in the Agena target docking adapter to the spacecraft docking bar. When Gordon pushed himself forward, he missed his goal and drifted in an arcing path above the target's adapter and around in a semicircle until he reached the adapter behind the spacecraft. But Conrad had released only two meters of the nine-meter umbilical, so he pulled Gordon back to the hatch to start his trek again. This time Gordon reached the target and grabbed some fixed handrails to pull himself astride the spacecraft nose. Ride em, cowboy! Conrad shouted, riding bareback with his feet and legs wedged between the two docked vehicles was hard to do. In practice sessions in zero-g aircraft flights, Gordon had been able to push himself forward, straddle the re-entry and recovery section, and wedge his feet and legs between the docking adapter and the spacecraft to hold himself in place leaving his hands free to attach the tether and clamp it down. But this did not seem to work so well in the actual conditions of space. He had to fight his pressurized suit to keep from floating away, and he had neither saddle nor stirrups to help him. All he could do was hold on with one hand and try to operate the tether clamp with the other. He struggled for six minutes, finally securing the line. At least they were ready for the tethered flight experiment that would come later in the mission. To Conrad, it was obvious that Gordon was running out of steam. What had been relatively easy in zero-g airplane flight training had become a monumental task. With his face streaming with sweat and his eyes stinging, Gordon groped blindly about. He tried to unstow a mirror on the docking bar so Conrad could watch him when he went to the back of the spacecraft. Gordon tugged at the attachment, but it would not budge. He abandoned the frozen mirror as not worth the effort. So far, he had not had a chance to wipe Conrad's window either. As the pilot inched his way back to the hatch area, Conrad helped him as much as he could. They then discussed whether Gordon should go to the adapter and get the maneuvering gun stored there. Gordon's right eye was still burning, and Conrad could see just how exhausted his pilot was. At this point, Conrad ordered Gordon to return to the capsule. Gordon obeyed his order and returned to the cabin at about 10.12 a.m. and closed the hatch at 10.17 a.m. Here are several clips from the spacewalk. If you listen carefully, you will hear Gordon's rapid breathing, a sign of his exhaustion during his walk. Oh, I'm here. Huh? I'm here, I guess. You're 
Conrad soon radioed Capcom Young through the Tannerive remote station that he had brought Gordon back in because, quote, he got so hot and sweaty he couldn't see, end quote. Gordon had no trouble getting into the spacecraft, nor did he have any difficulty closing the hatch. It had been only 33 minutes instead of the planned 107. One experiment, D-16 Power Tool Evaluation, was a casualty on Gemini 11, as it had been on Gemini 8. The Power Tool experiment would have to wait for Apollo. Since Conrad and Gordon were surrounded by so much loose gear, they opened the hatch an hour later and jettisoned all the umbilical extravehicular equipment at 11.19 a.m. Although there was a stand-up EVA period yet to come, spacewalking on this mission was finished, and the feasibility of working outside the spacecraft was not settled by Gemini 11. Cernan had told Collins and Gordon about his problems, and Collins had further emphasized his experience to Gordon. Yet, as the flights progressed, each successive pilot continued to be amazed that the simplest tasks were so much harder than he expected. Richard Gordon is quoted as saying, quote, Gene Cernan warned me about this, and I took it to heart. I knew it was going to be harder, but I had no idea of the magnitude, end quote. Apparently, the supporting engineers had no idea either, since they still had not provided satisfactory restraints to help the crews. The extreme exhaustion of past EVA pilots had sometimes adversely affected the rest of the mission, but Gordon's did not. Flight planners had learned to schedule periods of lesser activity immediately after heavy workloads. Conrad and Gordon began leisurely repacking equipment and restoring order to the cabin. Communications with the ground had dwindled to a brief transmission about spacecraft systems and a crew medical check. Conrad tested a thruster that had been sluggish and found that it was working better. 
The crew also ate a meal and photographed the air glow horizon. Half an hour before the sleep and rest period, the Rosenot Victor tracking ship flight controller sent them the numbers for the next big event, the high ride. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.